I think empathy has been the sort of priority shift. I think when I first started as a CRO, my main concern was optimizing performance. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in a vacuum, you don't drive retention. And so optimizing performance, but also understanding motivations, personal and professional, understanding incentives and growing both revenue and professional development simultaneously. It's important that we look at each other as human beings and we treat each other with mutual respect. And that applies more, even more so in business than you would think. Welcome to Media Sales Confidential, where we get the inside information from some of the world's most respected and innovative leaders. I'm Matt Bartles, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Schiller, the CRO at Group 9. Let's go. Welcome, Jeff, to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. Yeah, you've been at the forefront of digital for over 20 years. Uh, You've had an opportunity to have a diverse set of experiences in both traditional and digital organizations from E-Online to the USA Today to Pop Sugar and now Group 9. Why did you decide to make a career in media sales? That is an interesting question. It was a roundabout path that I I went to, I'm a proud Florida Gator, went to school down South and in school, I was on this sort of track of becoming an talent agent. And so I wanted to do pre-law, it was political science. I interned in college for a talent management firm after graduation, before law school, he said, why don't you come hang out in LA for pilot seasons, you know, kind of just get your feet wet. And that was the first and only pilot season that... (laughs) I was there. It was definitely clarifying in the sense that the life of an agent or manager was not a life for me. That said, when I got back to New York, I had always loved entertainment. I'm the biggest pop culture lover you're ever going to meet. And, you know, those who know me know my love for Marvel and for Star Wars and just generally movie quotes and pop culture, generally speaking. So that was a love that I had. And I remember back in the day, there was this thing called hot jobs and I saw an ad for a job at e-online and the description was interesting because it was sort of entertainment adjacent. It said, Hey, here's what e-online is the premier destination for entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. Become a sales assistant, learn the media business, interact with clients, all of those things. And all I read was entertainment. And I was like, this sounds awesome. Had no background in media. I took marketing 101 in college. I always loved being creative. Uh, I loved planning things. You know, I was very involved in everything that University of Florida had to offer. And I think it all sort of coalesced around, this seems interesting. Let me try it. That was my foray into media sales, but no CPM, knowledge. I had a CPM calculator, I think on my wall for like the first three months. I didn't even know how to staple on the right side of, well, technically the upper left, but on the, (laughs) on the, on the right side of a paper, I mean, talk about heading into the deep end without sort of a a life vest on. And this was 20 years ago. Yeah. 20 plus 20 20 plus. plus. What were you selling? Like, what was that like? It was interesting. So it was display. and, And for those listening that remember, the 234 by 60 and the 468 by 60 and the 88 by 31, you know, those were the ad units. And I, as a sales assistant, had to put together decks. I also had to do the reporting, which at that point 
was all manual. I had to download from the ad server into Excel, format it and send it to clients. Uh And there was no social media. Everything was largely still on dial up. I think high speed modems were maybe starting to come into the fray in 2000, but Uh AOL was still reigning supreme with their CD-ROMs. So it was, it was an interesting time, but largely with sponsorships. And then, you know, to some extent with the upfront, it was sort of branded vignettes like on linear that we then got like a piece of on the digital side. But I do remember I was like this, you know, punk digital upstart guy telling all of the TV people that digital was going to be big and eclipse linear someday. And fast forward, it took 21 years, but (laughs) I think this was the year. Finally, the prediction comes true. That is funny. So then you went from the EL line. So you went there for the entertainment and then got the education in media. And then how did you transition that and use leverage that to get into some of the large organizations that you went to? So what I found was I being a voracious consumer of media in my personal life translated to a love for the media industry in my professional life. And I voraciously consumed everything I could get my hands on in terms of the media business, not just understanding what a CPM was, Mm -hmm. but, you know, understanding the motivations of clients. And what I really liked was the ability to leverage my sort of creative portion of my brain, but also the problem solving portion. And the other piece as well is it's such a people driven business. And I found that I had a knack for being a good listener Mm -hmm. and understanding how to bridge the gap of the needs of a client with the needs of the consumer. And so that served me really well. You know, I went from being a sales assistant to an account executive. I went to a startup for those listening that again, are from this vintage. Well, they'll remember there was a startup called I1.com that a CBS and Viacom, I think back in the day had, had backed and it would, they would give away a million dollars a day and 10 million a month. And I think like a hundred million a year or something like that. It was a loyalty based portal. So I, I went there for a couple of years, got a lot of experience in things that are relevant today, like performance marketing, cost per lead, CPA stuff, mm-hmm. all things that with the advent of the direct to consumer world matter a lot. And again, cut my teeth there and then wanted to get into traditional. I always sort of looked at my career through the lens of a long game mm-hmm. and each stop allowed me to acquire a different skill set. So I went from i1.com to USA Today. And again, similar sort of story to E. This was pre-newspaper decline and it was digital has so much potential targeting, et cetera, et cetera. Nope. We love newspapers. Right. That said, I think, and I think my traditional counterparts that I've grown my relationships with over the years would say, regardless of my sort of passion for advancing the conversation in terms of innovation that never got in the way of partnership. And we were able to do a lot in terms of leveraging the legacy assets with digital. Um, you know, we were able to leverage behavioral targeting when that was a thing. And so I think innovation has always been at the forefront and sort of governed my approach to partnership, whether it's with a client or internal. And I think again, internally, my split partners, if you will, um, on the traditional side, always appreciated that. So I was there for about four years and then Time Inc. RAP was coming off of AOL and people.com was launching. And so I went over there and that was, so it was TV, digital newspaper, and now magazine and, you know, sort of was able to, again, 
understand another facet of the media business. What was the biggest challenge of being the digital guy in the traditional organizations and how did that shape your own uh, leadership? That's a great question. I think two things. One is you have to have an appreciation for what came before. You can't just come in and have a wrecking ball. So over time, I learned that sort of soft skill to say like, hey, I'm never going to come in and say everything you did was wrong. I'm going to learn and understand and really listen and see again, how can we innovate? What are the things that are pulling us forward versus sort of uh, pulling us back and, and always sort of looking through that lens. The other piece in terms of being a digital person in a sort of traditional org, you have to understand relationships. And unless you have strong relationships, you can't get anything done. And you have to remember in traditional orgs, they're extremely successful, extremely profitable. And uh, unless you have those relationships, they're just going to look at you as the person that is crying wolf or saying that the sky is going to come down. Right. You have to help them understand, Hey, this is not anything but a hedge to say that, look, if you remain dominant for a hundred years, great, but here's what's changing. Here's why it's changing. And here's why you should care about it. So you got to be able to evolve and adapt, obviously to continue to be successful. So how was that transition then moving into the sales leadership, leadership role in charge of everybody? How did that go? I think you have to have an appreciation for what I sort of rally around as an internal mantra, which is it's all connected. And as a sales leader, you can take one approach, which is to sort of singularly focus on sales performance. I don't recommend that. You always have to sort of have a round table approach. There is no head, but even more so as a sort of holistic revenue leader, you have to lead with sort of an equal ear. You can't have deference just to a seller because then that org gets lopsided in terms of power and influence. And we sort of have this concept on our leadership team with my directs where we're each other's sort of quote unquote first team. And that means that we're about helping and supporting each other, not about sort of protecting the fiefdoms that each of us have under our purview. I love that round table analogy. That's really good. Do you think that you were ready? Yes, I'm always ready. I mean, I think, <laughs> <Go time. laughs> yeah, I think I say this with humility, but I always have pushed myself, like I said, voraciously consuming everything there is to know, but also being a really strong listener and understanding, again, clients and living sort of by the, the, the philosophy of consumer first and you can't go wrong. So that's served me well. I've probably pushed myself sometimes too far, but never over my skis, always far enough where I'm like a little like, Oh wow, I'm actually doing this, but never to the point where what the hell did I just sign up for? And if anything, I've been told in my career, Oh, you don't have, and this obviously I have gray hair now, but (laughs) one sales leader told me you don't have enough gray hair to be a, a leader at this company. And so I've always been that sort of person that, you know, pushes and is in the room probably with folks that, might not be of the same vintage, but right. we're, we're fighting for the same position. So. Yeah. so you've been doing this now for eight years with the chief title. A lot of presidents go in with a no gray hairs and they come out with a lot of gray hairs. And now that you've got some gray hairs, what has actually uh, changed from your leadership perspective from when you first started to where you were able to start getting gray hairs? It's a really great question. I think empathy has been the sort of priority shift. I think when I first 
started as a CRO, my main concern was optimizing performance. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in a vacuum, you don't drive retention. And so optimizing performance, but also understanding motivations, personal and professional, understanding incentives and growing both revenue and professional development simultaneously. And so for me, that that change has been continued evolution, specifically over the last four or five years since joining Pop Sugar and then Group Nine. And like like I said, I think the more mature you get with leadership styles and um, just just generally speaking with experience, the more you understand that it you know it's important that we look at each other as human beings and we treat each other with mutual respect, and that applies more even more so in business than you would think right yeah that's great one of one of the guys that i work with he's got a mantra and it's don't be a jerk (laughs) it's that simple and that's the human aspect that you're talking about so now you're the cro at group nine you were at pop sugar for the listeners uh give them a flavor of group nine and your overall responsibilities that you have right now yeah absolutely so group nine was founded in 2016 by ben lair on the basis of consolidation coming to the media business. And obviously he was 100% correct in that assumption. So the formation of group nine was built on four brands, five, including pop sugar, but at the time, four brands, the Dodo, the world, world's largest pet and family, uh, modern family focused brand, Thrillist, yeah. number one travel food and drink site. Now this, the number one uh, news brand for young people. And then Seeker, which is a brand that we got from Discovery, which is a strategic investor in Group 9. And so I think the common thread of Group 9 relative to other players in the space is that our brands are bound together by optimism and we have the reach and influence across platforms to back it up. What are some of your lessons learned? that you would say to other leaders that are either uh, anticipating it or going through some type of a merger situation right now? I would say focus on adding value, not on protecting your job. If you focus on protecting your job, you're actually going to make defensive reactive moves. And I think if you focus on adding value, you're thinking long-term proactive offensive moves. And ultimately what the company, any company wants is for their leaders to add value. And that's probably the biggest piece of advice uh, because it's very easy to get caught up in the political machinations and saying, this is my territory, don't encroach on it. But I I think putting your head down, adding value, doing your job is the best defense against, you know, potentially getting your walking papers in in any of those situations. That's got to be nerve-wracking for anybody so I, I love that too focus on adding value not protecting your job it's a nerve-wracking scenario for everybody that's going through acquisitions both for the leadership team and then obviously for the the folks that are actually doing the selling on the street what are some of the things that you've done from a sales model perspective to put yourself in the best position to succeed so i think the first thing is uh, specifically when i got to group nine was to move from an agency-centric sales coverage model to industry vertical and really our success is built on the power of the portfolio so when you think about how we approach the marketplace it's twofold one is endemically where do we deserve to win mm-hmm. and are we winning if not how do we correct that so the dodo the pet category obviously pop sugar retail beauty so on and so forth but where the power of the portfolio comes into play is the, the other side of it, the non-endemic side. How do we take the endemic relationships that we have 
for example, pet care on the dodo and yeah. scale that across pop sugar and or any other more applicable brand or content franchise so that we can maximize our relationship, uh, maximize the the investment that clients are making. Retail is probably the best example of where we've done that, mm -hmm. where you take uh, a major department store retailer and you can see how if the relationship started with pop sugar, we're able to seamlessly leverage if they have something that is pet focused, we, we leverage the dodo. If they have something that is science and consumer electronics driven seeker and it allows for us to sort of gr grab market share competitively in a stronger fashion than if we were just like one property or two properties yeah and you've got some pretty aggressive growth goals out there i think uh, it's public knowledge that you are really pushing the envelope and you've got your uh leadership round table how do you determine where to place your bets on your growth initiatives so I think we look at it through short term and long term. So short term, it's you know a good example today would be okay. Consumer price index increased. We have a path which we carved out in January for the year. We had our priorities, et cetera, et cetera. We go now. We're like looking down the barrel of Q4. That long term plan. We start in our roundtables. We're constantly questioning on a short term basis. Has anything changed? How do we tweak? Is there going to be too much demand and not enough supply wherein brands are not going to spend money? And if so, do we need to change our plan? So I think our roundtables are really driven by those two parallel paths of like, what did we plan for long-term? And then how do we tweak it in the short term? I think also just understanding from an innovation perspective, you know, what is changing, what's evolving and always looking six months ahead. That's sort of my golden rule. Yeah, We can't be... From an innovation perspective, we can't be thinking about today. We have to be thinking about six months from now. Similarly, you know, when we think about how to market our brands, right. we have to be thinking about six months out, not three months out, not a month out. I would say the hardest thing from a sales organization perspective is how do you get in front of the RFP process? If you don't have a strategic plan that's six months out, then you're basically playing the reactive game. Yeah. Six months out, you can play in the proactive game. So, you know, I think that's also an important part. So when you're thinking about that balance of instituting innovation in the organization, that's an organizational wide competency, but then you have your execution excellence arm of actually making the dollars come in. How do you balance both of those as far as where you're spending your time thoughts, or are they not mutually exclusive? Honestly, multitasking is a prerequisite for being a revenue leader. You have to have seven plates that you're spinning. So I don't think that it's mutually exclusive. I think you have to be sort of weighing all of the, the options. If you were like Tim Tebow on the Florida right. Gators, you would have to see the field, both what's right in front of you for a short screen pass. Yeah. And also why, if you want to throw a bomb downfield and then also be able to immediately pivot and scramble and go for the run. So I think it's very much a fluid process and, and multitasking and sort of thinking about things almost not even three-dimensionally, four-dimensionally is a prerequisite. Yeah. He's pretty inspiring. How yeah, do you, for sure. How do you stay afloat with all the industry happenings? If you wanted me to get specific, Ad Exchange or Digiday, Ad Week, New York Times, Journal, the, all of this sort of trade press, but I also, again, voraciously sort of consume what the earnings reports are sure. for our clients, what the economic outlook is. You know, I think the biggest concern for us all is what does Q4 look like? 
So we'll see what happens. How about you personally? What are you reading right now? I am actually doing an audio book and I just like, again, I like to multitask. So I'd like to be on the move and I'm listening to walking with destiny, a book by Andrew Roberts on Winston Churchill. I think Churchill was one of the best, if not the best modern political leader. It was like, he felt like he was preordained, right? And it was, and maybe you could argue he manifested it or, you know, it was preordained, but I think his leadership traits and his use of inspirational mantra driven leadership, you know, obviously speaks volumes. Uh, you know, uh, we know what happened in world war two right. and he, he was sort of the savior of, of the UK. So that that's what I'm reading right now. But I I've read a ton of sort of industry driven books, leadership books, but I tend to favor the sort of biographical nonfiction because I like people as a proxy for leadership. Churchill is a and he is a dream for motivational speakers, sales leaders. I mean, so many good quotes and inspirational things. I know one of the things that he said was success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that's, I mean, that's sales right there. How do you handle that? The inherent challenge of no all the time in sales? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, you want to limit the no's. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, so we tend to obsess over customer service and to help inform that data. And, you know, I think the data is what's actually working, what's not, what's our close rate, what products are being leveraged, almost treating it like a SaaS cell mm -hmm. uh, where we have our product suite and, you know, we're able to say, Oh, you know, client X keeps on buying off on this. So we have that now foundationally, we have stability. How do we build on it? So I limit think, the nose, but what if you, how do you deal with the salesperson that's getting the nose and it's just getting deflated at some point in sales, you get deflated and you're like, ah, oh. yeah, look, I, I think rejection is a part of life and it helps you get better. It helps you understand. I think getting told no is great. I think what matters even more is what you do with the no. Right. And if you ask the questions that can convert it to a yes, the next time around, no harm, no foul. If you're sure. constantly getting no, 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 something's wrong. So, you know, like, look, we want to support and nurture salespeople, but we also want to hold them accountable to ask, you know, I always say to, to the sales team, ask yes or no questions, be an investigative reporter, and you're going to limit the no's. And if you do get a, a no, then ask even more questions. And, you know, all of the yeah. things that you would want to help inform your team internally. And we set that expectation because there is no support team. We're all marching towards the same end goal. And so the relationship between a seller and a marketer needs to be, hey, we didn't win the business, but here's why. And here's what we need to do better moving forward or to our pricing team. Yep. Here's what we need to adjust. So you can't just, you know, be okay with no, right. um, you have to sort of like embrace it, learn from it and convert it into a yes. Embrace it, learn from it, convert it into the yes. That's great. And then when you get that yes, how do you celebrate the wins? I think it's really important to create a culture that is built on spotlighting teams that deserve to be spotlighted. And so I think internally we have like a, you know, email trigger, if you will, that whenever a deal gets closed, push to 90% verbal status, an email goes out and the celebration uh, sort of ensues. But then we also will have a special spotlight if it's a deal that matters for any myriad of reasons, whether it's tied to a franchise, whether it's the first, 
in a category, whether it's new business, whether it was just super hard fought, I think it's really, really important to celebrate. And, you know, people are happy when they're winning and they feel bad when they're not. So as long as you can sort of continue to show those folks that maybe are struggling, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, you know, winning is contagious. Yeah. I love winning is contagious. It's like baseball. You can't get too high. You can't get too low. You got to learn from your no's and mistakes and then celebrate the wins. Exactly. Exactly. And no one, you know, no one's batting a thousand. And so you also have to normalize, like what is the norm? And to your point earlier, be okay with missing six and, and hitting four, even though it's not a majority, that's the sort of space that you're in. That's the peak of what you can do. Yeah. What's a non-starter for you from a seller performance standpoint? I'm really big on accountability. I think I want to understand, and I'm curious about if we feel that we deserve to win, what's preventing us from, from winning and, you know, forget the so-and-so has a relationship with so-and-so. If we would deserve to win, you have to know and hold yourself accountable as to why we're not and what the plan is. So accountability is, is sort of the one rule, you know, that, that I have in terms of if a salesperson is consistently falling short of their number, um, obviously, you know, we're running a business and we have to make thoughtful, but tough decisions. However, if they're approaching it in the right way, um, chances are it's not something that they're doing wrong. It's just something that, you know, external factors may need to sort of be tweaked budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So I think like it's how you do it, not necessarily the outcome, you know, people, I don't want sellers that are winning business just because they are entertaining. I want them winning business because they're valued partners that are trusted to deliver real business results for, for their clients. Yep. Yeah. Hey, listen, you got your team. Now it's your job to coach them up. Right. And then if the coaching isn't sticking, it's your job then to be the manager. Exactly. Um, Exactly. All right. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the broader industry from an industry perspective. What is it that is exciting you most about what's coming in the next coming year? You talked about your six month planning process. Let's broaden it out to all of 2022. I think a lot, you know, certainly like the delay of the cookie deprecation, but you know, the sort of recalibration towards first party data and, you know, subsequently publishers, that's exciting. Consolidation, as we talked about earlier, is super exciting. It'll be interesting to see in in 12 months from now, what the world looks like from a digital media perspective. I think the sort of COVID catalyzed shift of linear to OTT and the streaming wars. I mean, there's, you know, there's so much excitement and so much disruption going on. And then, you know, when you look at platforms, it's like, I think, uh, Instagram was like 2011 musically 2016 slash TikTok. Um, you know, we're sort of almost overdue for another big platform to come and disrupt. But I would say right now it's been really interesting, especially I have three boys, three young boys, and they are obsessed with what's going on on TikTok. And it's, and it's different in the sense that it's just entertainment. It's not like quote unquote social. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how brands think about that. You know, the, the, the NFT space, again, I think all really, really interesting things in terms of what the media landscape is going to look like. So how do you keep your kids off of TikTok? You know what? Actually, two things. One is it's good for them to understand technology. It's good for them to understand the pros and cons of being on 
social, you know, social media too long. But I, I think that the sort of technology, you know, evolution is something that I want them to be right at the forefront of. So generally speaking, the short answer is that I put a limit on their, on their phone. Um, and they have to ask me for more time, uh, which I don't, I don't give them, but I still, you know, allotting them an hour a day to really understand technology, what it means to connect with other people. Also, to be careful about protecting right. their their identity and their personal brand because doing something on TikTok that you think is funny as a 12-year-old may not be funny when you're 24. Right. Yeah, I've had that we've had plenty of those conversations with the kids that that could come back to you at any moment in time. It's interesting that I do the same thing, screen time monitoring for sure just to let them know that hey, you shouldn't be on here all day. Okay, let's shift gears. I just had to Google this, another Churchill quote, uh, one of my favorites. I want to make sure I got it right. He said, the price of greatness is responsibility. What do you think is the greatest responsibility for a chief revenue officer? My personal opinion is to practice what you preach. I will never openly criticize specific people, but we all know that you know sales is, has a sort of penchant for people that like to fly under the radar just because again it's like you can get by if you're well liked and you take people out for drinks and so you know i think when i talk about accountability i hold myself accountable when i talk about being strategic yeah. i push myself to think 6 months out and so i think practicing what you preach and not sort of just being a lean back Sure. leader, but being a sort of lean forward, lean in leader is, is paramount. Um, you know, and you see the organizations where that doesn't exist and it's frenetic and it's chaotic and it's reactive and they don't ultimately do as well as, uh, companies like group nine would perhaps. Right. How do you get people to believe in you as a leader? I think, you know, you have to build credibility first and foremost, so if you say, Hey, this is what we're doing. Here's why I think it'll work. And you present a thoughtful argument and then hopefully it pans out. You're building credibility over the, over time. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to listen. You can't just sort of assume, you know, it all, you need to surround yourself with smart people and by giving them a voice, it actually empowers you as their leader, you know, and just sort of, again, uh, approaching things through the lens of what can we do, not what can I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are easily interchangeable, which is not a good thing. You know, I always think about we before me. Again, it served me well and it served my team well because uh, they feel empowered and, and there's harmony and alignment, which then cascades down, right? If our management leadership team is not setting the example, then how are those middle managers and how are the individual contributors supposed to act the right way? Right. Do you actively focus on the we versus the I in your engagement? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think for example, there are uh, more sort of uh, infrastructure driven decisions where it's not, Hey, you all get five heads each do as you please. It's we have X number of heads. What is the best for this collective team what is the best way for us to utilize that to achieve our collective end goal, not your specific part of the baton race lap, the actual entire race itself? Sure. That's interesting. It t- takes us to the one question that we always like to uh, end with, and you've hit on a number of them with your leadership roundtable, your accountability. It's what is Jeff Schiller's leadership mantra? 
I actually um, get teased a lot because I've been pushing out mantras, you know, since uh, for like 700 years. And I try to sort of build on them, you know, and in the past it's been, you know, proactive is the path. Uh, We need to guarantee the RFP, you know, all of the sort of things that build on continued improvement. I think mantras are amazing because they focus the org. I would say there's a couple of things. One is, you want mantras that connect the entire organization. So ours is win through retention. And the other piece to that is it's all connected, as I mentioned when we started, which is, again, to say it's a round table. We're a table of equals all driving towards one common goal of making the client so happy and just sort of fulfilled in their relationship with us that they want to renew, want to retain us and hopefully increase budget and take it from our competitors. Love it. Love it. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today on Media Sales Confidential. As always, it was awesome having you. Would love to have you back. For those who are out there listening, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. Share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And that is the inside scoop.